Thank you. I hope that you've already felt <clears throat> and feel blessed this morning. The worship has been incredible. Well done, guys. Thank you so much for leading us, Reuben, and all of you. It's really well done. You know, there are moments <clears throat> in our life where we get to see God do something incredible, and, uh, and those moments make an impression on us. It changes uh, maybe how we move forward from there. I hope that there's been a moment like that in your life where you've found hope in Christ and that moment changed you, your identity from who you were to who you're going to be. And, uh, and there's different times, maybe there's different events. Uh, this morning I want to tell you a story. Uh, when I was younger, I was also lighter. Um, it was about 20 years ago, <clears throat> early 2000s, when I had the opportunity to climb a mountain. Uh, has anyone climbed any big mountains? Like, uh, okay, I, I love people raising their hand. I climbed Mount Rainier which is outside of Seattle. Mount Rainier is 14,410 feet and growing, I hear. Someone told me it's 12 feet now, 14,412. But when I climbed it, it was 14,410. It's the fifth highest peak in the continental United States. And, uh, and it was quite the endeavor. You know, it was a three-day event. And uh, to prepare for it, it was supposed to be a six-month preparation phase. Uh, if you know me, I'm kind of a procrastinator. So what happened leading up to the, to the climb itself was I did about six months worth of working out in the last four days. And uh, what happens is it doesn't prepare you well. So <clears throat> it was a very difficult climb for me. Uh, but the climb is, is intense. You're in a four-man rope team. You know, you're tied together. Um, and, uh, and so if someone falls, the other three can catch you. That's kind of the idea. Uh, but there's different places in the climb where you go through a specific danger area, maybe a rock fall, places where rocks are constantly rolling across the trail. And what you do in those moments is you go to a short rope thing and you tie all the ropes so you're actually really close to each other. The idea is that it's less space for a rock to take the team down because if a rock grabs the rope then you're going to all go with it, right? And uh, so <clears throat> the last day is two nights camping in the snow. The last day you get up and leave camp at 2 a.m. so that you're on the top at the very peak right when the sun rises. Um, and you want to do that because as the, the snow starts to heat up, the crevasses on the mountain open wider. So you want to be off the mountain before the snow gets too hot, before the, before the sun begins to heat the glacier. And so uh, we hit the, hit the morning, 2 a.m., we're heading up the, the trail, and they short rope us. We get real short about this one place where there was a rock over, over the top of the trail. So you have a backpack on. Just picture this, middle of the night, you're on the mountain, you're terrified to some degree, and then you come to this rock, and you have to hug the rock and scoot across the rock. You're short roped, your buddies are there. And in that moment I turned and I had my headlamp on and I looked behind me and behind me was this giant abyss. And you think, what am I doing here? Who in their right mind does this? And you think this is why people die on this mountain every single year. And, uh, and it's those moments. Well, that, that, that mountain, Mount Rainier, is a volcano. <clears throat> and you may know that in Washington and Oregon and even Northern California, there's a series of volcanoes. Well, May 18th, 1980, one of those volcanoes blew up. The picture you see there is Mount St. Helens. It's about two hours south of Mount Rainier where I climbed. And, uh, and if you've been to the Seattle area or Portland, if you, you've probably seen Mount St. Helens. Maybe some of you remember this story. So in 1980, 8 o'clock in the morning, there was a small earthquake. And five minutes later, Mount St. Helens blew up. And this is what it looked like. 
the explosion was unbelievable. The, the uh, U.S. Geological Survey said that the explosion at Mount St. Helens was 1,600 times the magnitude of the atom bomb that they dropped in Japan at the end of World War II. And uh, so you can imagine the fury that unleashed. The clouds that you see there were moving at 300 miles an hour, and they extended about 27 miles out from the mountain in that one direction. Uh, the, it dumped 900 tons of ash across southern Washington, and in many ways changed the landscape of that area forever. The, the experts in the day said that it would never recover. It, it, it blew up right there. You see a picture of a lake called Spirit Lake, and it laid down all of the timber for that 27 miles where it blew up. It was over 250 square miles of timber that was laid waste. Uh, 57 people died that morning. <clears throat> the minute, the, the initial eruption itself only lasted for a minute, um, and in that minute, so much changed. Within a, a nine hours, the full eruption was over, and the, the, the impact to the area around Mount St. Helens has never been the same. Maybe some of you have visited after the first service, people came and told me their Mount St. Helens stories. People have vials of the ash, and people have visited there in the past. If you drive from Seattle to Portland, you drive past, even today, 40 years after the event, you drive past mountains of ash, where they just put 900 tons that blanketed all the highways. And, uh, and so what I want you to see is twofold. The, the devastation of that day leaves a mark even today, but the experts said it would never recover, and it was amazing. Within one decade, what began to happen? The forest began to grow. People put a lot of effort into replanting. And, uh, and if you go there today, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful park. You can go to the observatory and you can see the crater. You can see the new lava dome that's rising up in the middle of the crater. You can hike up to the rim. And if you get a permit, you can even hike up into the middle of the crater. Um, the, the day of the eruption, the, the mountain was 9,800 feet. In the morning uh, the, after the eruption, it was 8,700 feet. It lost almost 1,400 feet of elevation in that one moment. <clears throat> So you think, how does this have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, here's how. The devastation of the explosion of Mount St. Helens was massive. It's almost un unparalleled uh, when it comes to the, the strength and fury uh, of, uh, of one natural disaster. Um, but, but what happened in, in Jerusalem a hundred years before Nehemiah got there is very similar in scope. Uh, I want to paint this picture for you because I think if we're moving forward talking about the next stage uh, of Nehemiah, you have to realize just how bad things were in Jerusalem when Nehemiah arrives. You know, a hundred years before Nehemiah arrived, before he got there, the, Jerusalem was, was a city that was known to be the, the, the home place of the Israelite, Israelite God. The, the temple of Solomon stood, and it's even now one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And, uh, and that, that temple was made um, in, the, in Solomon's day, the son of David, and it stood for so many hundreds of years. It was an incredible, iconic um, location where the people of God could say, this is where our God is. And they pointed to it. Well, 100 years before Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, the Babylonians utterly and completely destroyed Jerusalem. And, and I want you to look at the, the description in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 25, 9 and 10. This is what it says. This is about Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. It said, he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. Verse 10 says, the whole Babylonian army under the commander of the Imperial Guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So this is a hundred years before Nehemiah arrives. So get this, 
in that hundred years, a couple things happens over, there's 70 years where only the poorest of the poor who were left in, in Jerusalem uh, lived there. They didn't have any walls, didn't have any protection. They were, they were uh, impoverished in every way you can imagine. And then underneath the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel, they moved 42,000 people, came back in this first wave of exiles returning from, from Babylon back to Israel. And this happened about 30 years before Nehemiah. When they return to Jerusalem in those 30 years, they start rebuilding the temple. And uh, under Zerubbabel, they finish the temple, but they don't really have the ability to do everything else. So they have some worship, but it's minimal. They have very few people living in the city. Why do they not live in the city? Well, the city is broken down. It's destroyed. It's, it's, it's a shell of its former self. And so what I want you to see is twofold. The, the devastation of the city was more than just the physical problems in the city. It wasn't just broken houses and buildings and walls. The people themselves had been rejected by the God that they served. So 70 years later, Zerubbabel and these, these exiles return to Jerusalem and they return with this idea that God's gonna fulfill all of their desires. He's gonna reinstate them as God's people. And when they get there, they just find out now we're poor exiles living in a foreign country because all that they knew wasn't there anymore. And they began to rebuild this temple, but even with the rebuilt temple, it's only a shell of its former self. It wasn't nearly as beautiful or ornate or exciting as the previous temple. And so this whole thing, in Ezra, the book of Ezra, tells us that when they dedicated the temple, the people cried because it was the, the few people that could remember Solomon's temple were just kind of sad that it wasn't even close to what had happened before. And so I want you to see that the impacts of that hundred years of, of devastation and rule is where Nehemiah arrives. Nehemiah has never been there. He's never seen it. He's never, he's never experienced what Jerusalem is like. Nehemiah is kind of a wealthy guy. He's, he lives and serves the king. He serves the right hand of the king. He's the cupbearer. So can you imagine how Nehemiah goes from being in the courts in the presence of the most powerful person on the planet to now going to Jerusalem to try to help a bunch of people that really don't know how to help themselves. They're living in a city with broken walls and they're not fixing the walls. They're not, they're not bettering themselves. So the depression that's on this people is massive. And while the walls are a big deal and the poverty is a big deal and the, and the hopelessness is a big deal, the biggest deal of all is that the God that they've heard of is far from them. That's the biggest deal of all. So today, as we, as we get to this next section, I want to call it Nehemiah phase two. Your phase one is that Nehemiah focuses on the physical needs. They build the walls, and in 52 days, they complete it. Uh, let's jump there real quick. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's found Nehemiah 6, 15 and 16. You, we read it last week as well. It says, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding people were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. And this is so meaningful because now you get this moment where the wall is done and it's a wonderful thing, but now the rebuilding of the people has begun. Now they see that God has done something through them and the most powerful part of that is that God did it. They knew that they could not do this in their own strength and God was with them. 
So they begin to shift, their attitudes begin to shift, and you see that Nehemiah quickly begins to shift in how he works as well. So one of the things that happens is, is the hope that Nehemiah brought with him becomes evident, it becomes physical. The hope that he has is that the walls can be reborn, uh, rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt. The wall, the city itself can be reborn and that their lives can be prosperous. But most importantly, they see that their relationship with the Most High God can be renewed. It can be restored. And the stories of old, the stories that they've grown up hearing can become real. And so right now, I believe in this moment in the story, the people of God are, are tempted to think maybe God does care. Maybe once again, he'll be with us. Maybe all of these things we've heard will be something we can not just hear about, but we can experience ourselves. And so I wanna, I wanna say to you that the, the real work, the people work is about to begin. And so let's look at Nehemiah 7, 1 through 5. It says this, After the wall had been rebuilt and I set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and musicians and the Levites were appointed, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I hope people say that about me. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, and some near their own homes. Now look at verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical I found the genealogical record of those who had been first to return, and this is what I found there. So we're going to stop there. So a couple of things. Immediately upon the completion of the walls, Nehemiah starts handing off responsibilities. He puts his brother Hananiah in charge of the city. Here's a mayor. Take care of the city. Then he found another guy, Hananiah, and said, you're going to be our police chief. Protect the city. You have walls. Get people appointed. Make sure that they're guarding all the, the gates, and we're going to take care. So immediately, you see him hand off significant responsibility. Uh, what we see here is Nehemiah transitioning from being the leader of the city to now being the leader of the people. He starts to operate like a governor now. And so he's available to these leaders, but he's no longer taking care of all the little de details. And, uh, and so what he begins to do is say, how are we going to fill up the city? We've done all this work to protect the city, but the city's empty. And, uh, and so the, I would say phase two, what we're going to look at today, is how he starts to work out a process and a plan to get people to come and be a part of the city that God now has given them. And so I want to say the first thing he did is that he remembered, he remembered the legacy of those who had come before him. He realized that the work that they were doing in the city of Jerusalem was not just his work, and it wasn't just the work of the people that had rebuilt the wall. He realized there was a lot of people who'd been involved in it. And if you want to take the time to read verses 5 through 73, uh, I'm going to give you 10 seconds. No, I'm kidding. Um, you, can, you can read on your own time. It's a, lot of, it's a long list of all the different names and families and, what, and who had come back with Zerubbabel those 30 years before. They're the ones that had rebuilt the temple. And so what you see here is a, is a, it's a, uh, a record of all the families that had come back and what they gave for the rebuilding of the temple. And so I just want you to notice a couple things. One is at the end of it, it tells us that there were 42,260 people that returned. So you think about a city like Jerusalem, you think about how empty it is. There had been a lot of people that had come back from Babylon that were not living in the city. But they're trying to figure out who came back the first. Also notice what they contributed. They contributed almost 750 pounds of gold and 1.25 tons of silver 
to the rebuilding of the temple. So these people gave significantly. And if you also notice, it lists in there the different people that gave. And it says that their families, the governor, the nobles, and the rest of the people. I want to I note here that our legacy, the things that God has brought before us, is not just the famous stories. It's not just the amazing big stories that make us understand and know that God is moving among us. It's all the stories. Everybody has a part to play, whether you're the pastor preaching and you're in the front and everyone knows your name, or whether you're someone that is, is participating in small ways, teaching a class, teaching a children's class, or doing something small. God is working and you're contributing to the future of this church, even if you don't think anyone notices. When we look back at the, at the long line, the legacy that God has given us, we see that every single person's legacy contributes to who we, who we are and what we've had. And that can be in small ways or it can be in big ways. Uh, I, I like to think of it like this. If, if the disciples had not made disciples, who also made disciples, for 2,000 years today, I probably wouldn't be a disciple of Jesus. And I have no idea what their names were, where they went, where they came from. I don't know what place they lived. I have no idea if I could follow the exact line of how Jesus' word got to his disciples that eventually made it to me. I have no idea whose legacy I continue. Every single one of us has a part to play and we should remember that we are not doing it on our own. Sometimes when we start new projects, we think that our ideas are what's so important. We think that the energy that we bring and the work that we're doing is really all that matters. But we don't necessarily often remember how many people have made it possible for us to even be standing here, for us to be looking at a beautiful place like this, for us to be a part of this. You know, 62 years ago, some people split off from a church and said, we want to plant a church in North McAllen. And we benefit from that. And there was a lot of people involved in that. It wasn't just a few. Maybe a few started the idea, but a lot of people contributed. And a lot of effort and a lot of legacy has been born and placed into this place. And we should praise God for it. And we should consistently think about how God has blessed us uh, with, with this place and, and the people that are in it. So the first thing he does is Nehemiah switches from commander and builder in chief and he starts assigning managers to take care of these different affairs of the city. He picks out good people who feared God more than most. Then he starts counting the people that live in this city and he realizes that this empty city will not be sustainable for long. You can't have a city that operates well with no one in it. So then he has to figure out how do we get more people here? So like I said, he continued, he, he checked out and, and looked to see what record was in place for the people that had been there before him. He realized that he was a small part of a puzzle that was going to continue long after him. And so the second thing he did, so the first one is he remembered who had come. The second thing he did is he invited those that lived outside the city to come in. Now I want to tell you, he doesn't invite them to move in yet. If you, if you look at the whole narrative of Nehemiah from, from chapter 8, 7 and 8 where we're today until chapter 12, they go through a long process of trying to get the right people in the city. All the way down to chapter 12, they do, a, they, they do a lottery and they bring in a certain number of families to fill the city. But this is the first step. Let's get everyone here. So he invites them to this big worship service. It says at the beginning of chapter 8, um, uh, it says this, let me, let me flip to it. I'm, I'm getting a little bit scattered on my notes, but we'll be okay. So chapter eight starts with this. It says, all the people came together in one square before the water gate and they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of which Moses, the Lord had commanded for Israel. I want you to notice that, that, that first line, all the people, it's not just the people in Jerusalem. He's pulling in all the people. And if you think back a few chapters when they were talking about who was building the different sections, there were people coming from outside villages or people coming from all around to help 
finish the wall. These are the people he invites. Everyone that's contributed, everyone that's a part of this, everyone that is an Israelite, come together and we're going to worship God. So they come and he starts, the Ezra, the teacher of the law, begins to read, uh, read, read the, the book of the law. So look at verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which has been made up of men and women, and I love this, all who were able to understand. It wasn't just the adults. It was anyone who could understand what was going on. So, so those of you who are kids in here, if you can understand what I'm saying, then I pray that God would make this really meaningful for you because you're not someone that can be left out. You can be there and you can participate and you can be a part of God moving. Uh, verse three, he read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. I was here this morning at daybreak. Uh, it was about 7.30 since we switched our times up this morning. And uh, so imagine from 7.30 until now, well, uh, that clock is wrong. It's 11.46. Um, imagine that we just had been reading scripture from that time until now. How do you think you'd be feeling? <laughs> Probably your back would be a little sore. You might be a little sleepy. Uh, my, my kids would probably say they're bored. I'm so bored, right? Uh, our, our world is, is, is very bent around our, our, our um, um, comfortability and all those things, but this, this, this world was a little different. This was the first time in some time that God's word had be read on a level like this, and it change them. It was like that moment we were talking about at the very beginning where a moment with God can maybe change your identity and make you someone else. It's the beginning of God's people becoming God's people all over again. Look what happens. So in verse five, it says, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened up, all the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. And they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What kind of moment is it when you're reading the scriptures, you're reading God's word, and it causes you to respond with a physical response? They stood and then they bowed their faces to the ground because the God that they love, the God that they're worshiping, the God that they've moved back to Jerusalem to be a part of is drawing near to them and it's, it's impacting them. I, I love that this is Nehemiah's way of saying, come, see the city. Look what God is doing. Look how he's brought the walls back to life. There's so much life to be had here. Come and join us. Let's stand before this God that we say we love and, and let's be a part of it together. And what happens is it begins to impact these people. I wish that we would have a similar response so many times. You think about this. These people were living in Jerusalem. They knew all of the old stories. The Israelites, they knew the stories. They had heard about the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had heard about David being delivered from that Goliath that one time. And they had heard of the stories of God's faithfulness over the years. And yet here they are living in a broken down, impoverished city that was supposed to be the city of David, the city of God. And they're wondering, how is a God that's that powerful not here with us now? I think that there are a lot of people in the Rio Grande Valley that know a lot about God, but they've never met him. And they very well may have these ideas of, yeah, that Christian God sounds good, but he's so far away. He's so far off. And if he's real, he's never made himself real to me. But everyone here in the valley has probably heard of Jesus. They might even know that he died on the cross and they might even know that he died for their sins, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> 
right? Like as if that's a blah, blah, blah kind of a statement. And yet here in this moment, it's the same way that these Israelites are interacting with the God of Nehemiah. They've been there for so long, and yet they're so far from him. They knew about him, but they didn't know him. And so what's going to happen is we're going to see Nehemiah goes through these efforts to make sure the people of God have a relationship with this God that they've heard of. And so what happens here is unbelievable. What happens here is that they begin to hear this, this message about the God that is there. They see the evidence of the wall go up. They know that only God could give them the strength to make this wall work. And yet in the middle of that, they begin this worship service and the people's hearts are cut and the people's hearts are responding and God does something special and God begins to open their hearts to more, to opening their hearts to seeing what God's gonna do. The brokenness begins to dissolve and the God in front of them begins to to, to be strong and mighty and in front of them. You know, the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to make an effort. We, we, last year, we did a, a campaign for a month, and we're going to do it again. It's called Who's Your Five Campaign. And the idea is this. We're going to ask everybody who calls themselves a disciple maker at Calvary. We, we say that we exist to make disciple makers for the glory of God among the nations. So we're, we're going to ask all of you to pray that God would give you the names of five people, five people that are close to you, and far from God, and that you would pray for them every day for 30 days, starting next Sunday that ends um, Sunday, Palm Sunday. For 30 days, we're going to ask you to pray for them, pray that God would open their hearts, because so many people, I believe, in this valley know about God, but they don't know God. They need somebody to be that buffer, someone to say, come join us. The city is ready. The, 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 the God is, is, is looking for you. Come, see him, join him, meet him. Because these people are just like the people in Jerusalem. They know of God, but they have no idea how much he cares about them. The people of God in Jerusalem were pretty sure that God had abandoned them. And yet in these few moments that we see in these next couple chapters, we see God draw near to them and it changes them fundamentally. At the end of our service during our response time, we're going to hand each one of you a, a, a little bookmark. It's a card and you can write five names and we're going to ask you to spend this week asking God to give you those five names. Um, you can take it and do it in 10 seconds, but I'd like for you to pray about it a little bit. Pray and ask God to give you five people that you can pray for over these next 30 days and then keep the card with you. Put it in your Bible, put it in your wallet, put it in your purse, wherever it is, and pray for them every single day. So Nehemiah, he remembered the people that had come before them. That was the first step. The second thing is he invited people to come into the city, come and see what God is doing. And then thirdly, they celebrated that God had restored his relationship with his people. And look at how this, this beautiful section ends up. Uh, we're going to be there in chapter 8 again. It says, uh, <clears throat> the Levites, I'm going to let you read the rest of that verse. It's a lot of names. They instructed the people in the law while the, the people were standing there. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so the people understood what was being read. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord, the words of the law. Listen to this. We, uh, I teach a, a little uh, a, a class, a Sunday school class at 8.05 on Sunday mornings. It's the Truth Seekers class. Chuck Olson that leads our choir has had that class for many years. And I've just been teaching there for the last six or seven months. And, um, and one of the guys in the class, one of the members said to me a few weeks ago, he said, you know, I get so frustrated. He's in the choir. He said, I get so frustrated. We sing songs and there's no response. Nobody stands up or nobody raises their hands or nobody, nobody claps. 
And, and I said, you know, people worship in different ways. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't think that an emotional response guarantees that people's lives are being changed. But I understand what you're saying, I said to the member. But what I love about this story right here is that people were so cut that there was a clear, physical, and emotional response. The people's lives were so fundamentally changed. You think about what they said. It says that they raised their hands and they bowed their faces to the ground. And then here it tells us that the words of God so cut to their heart that they were weeping. How long has it been since God's word caused you to cry? How long has it been since God's word drove you to your knees and you said, Lord, I need more of you. It doesn't need to be all the time. And I'm not saying it needs to be here by any means. But I think that a, worship, a person that is a disciple that follows Jesus should be impacted by their, in their physical body and in their emotional self and how they worship. And I want to tell you, if you're dry, then draw near to him because he wants you to be filled with his spirit. It doesn't stop there. So the people were crying as they heard the words of the law. And in verse 10, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send those Send some of those to those who have nothing. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And in verse 11, the Levites calmed the people, saying, Be still, this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then verse 12, I love this. The people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, uh, and to celebrate with great joy, because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. They went to Jerusalem for a celebration and then God happened. And he happened in such a powerful way that it impacted them in ways that maybe they hadn't thought of or seen in, in years past. The God that was the pillar by cloud of, during the day and the pillar by fire visited them and they were impacted by it. They saw him for the first time and it so impacted them that this worship that we see start here actually continues for a month. The next several sermons will be talking about how these people were so impacted by God this day and what came after that, that it changed how they acted in the future. It's unbelievable. And I love that so many times when we think God's moving, we do serious things. We try to do prayer and solitude. I love how those are great disciplines or maybe fasting. And yet here, Nehemiah is having none of that. Nuh-uh. This is not a time for you to go hide in your room and pray to God. This is a time for you to celebrate all the great things that God is doing. So go eat and drink. Give to people that don't have anything. Remember how faithful God is. I like that. We need to do some more celebrations like that, Julio. Amen. Puro fajitas. <laughs> okay. Um, it's lunchtime. It's a powerful moment for the Israelite nation. I, I want you also to realize this is the last narrative we have in the Old Testament. What I mean by that is from this point on, the end of Nehemiah's story, we don't have any story of what happens in Israel until Jesus is alive. So the reforms that Nehemiah puts in place here, when they start this worship time, turns into a new promises and covenants with God that turns into new worship forms in the, in the temple. Those forms continue for 450 years until, until Jesus comes on the scene. And while there's a lot of problem with those forms, by the time Jesus gets there, they, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and whatnot, there's a lot of problems. The worship that Nehemiah installs endures for almost five centuries. That says something, doesn't it? The people's hearts were so changed here that they remained faithful in many, maybe, again, legalistic ways, 
By the time you get to the Pharisees, they're so careful about not breaking God's law that they don't even know that God is there with them. So maybe we could have a lesson on those two extremes. But, but the bottom line here is that, that Nehemiah helps institute God moving close to his people and the people staying close to God for a long time. We're going to end with this. Uh, uh, I want to put that picture of uh, Mount St. Helens up as it, as it is today. You know, a place that was filled with unbelievable destruction just 40 years ago now is a beautiful park. You can go and hike hundreds of miles of trails. You can swim in Spirit Lake. You can see down in the beautiful clear water, there's still logs at the bottom. Um, you can hike up to the edge. You can, you can do all those things. You can watch. So, I mean, 2005 to 2008, there were a series of small eruptions. So you can watch uh, steam vents. If you climb up there, you'll see there are places that are still smoking. You know, you can go see all that. And what you can do is you can see that something that was so devastating 40 years ago has recovered in a way that many experts thought would be impossible. And in the same way, people who are far from God, who've experienced incredible devastation in their lives, in a moment can draw near to him. And if you're one of those people, if you're one of those people that have gone through devastation, if, you're, if you feel like you're the, the, the valley of dry bones that is just, just barely making it, then you can turn to this God and he will draw near to you and he'll give you this hope. We also have a community of believers here that love each other and want to know and love others as well. But there are many people who don't know that because they're not here. And the only way they're going to know the love of God is if you and I will be the ambassadors of hope in their lives. So my prayer for you today is for you to look at people as opportunities to see God's love. Look at them as someone who's, who just hasn't known the truth yet and is desperate for it. The city of Jerusalem got new walls and it made, them, it made them feel a lot more protected. But what really changed is when God drew near and then the people were restored. They're no longer Jerusalem, the city that got abandoned. Now they're Jerusalem, the city that represents God's love to the planet. Let us be the same kind of people. Let us be the people that represents God's love to the lost all around us. As we close, uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to hand out these little cards here in just a minute. But there's a few things I'd like to do and as we talk about responding. How do we respond to a message like this? Well, there's two, three things I'd like to do. One, I'd like to encourage you to start praying. Even now, who are the five people that you'll be praying for over the next month? What are their names? How do, you, how, do you, how do you seek God and know that he's giving you an opportunity? Maybe it's your children or grandchildren. Maybe it's your friends at school or coworkers that, that you see every day. Maybe it's someone that you know um, that lives close by, a neighbor or, or someone. But who are they? They're close to you but far from God. And then will you commit? Will you pray for them every single day? The little card we're going to give you has a, has a little uh, a, a perforated edge. Come on, guys. We'll go ahead and pass them out while we're... There's the perforated edge. You can tear it off and keep it close to you. Keep it near you so you can pray for them every time you think about it. And then lastly, we pray and ask God to give you an opportunity to show them his love in the next 30 days. Pray for them. That's great. But pray that God would open up a door to their heart that you can speak into. And maybe God will do something incredible. Maybe God will open up people's hearts to respond to his gospel. And maybe someone that you're praying for will find the hope and life that only Jesus can bring. And here's what we're praying for you. We're praying that God would, would bring us new believers in the next month. 
that we can begin to train and disciple and hopefully help them become disciple makers. And we're so filled with hope that we're going to already plan to have baptism Sunday, Easter Sunday. We're praying that some of those people that are going to get baptized Easter Sunday with people that are far from God today and maybe drawing close to him then. And so a couple of things. Be praying that God would move in the hearts of people and I'm praying that God would move in yours. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your message. We thank you for your, your servant, Nehemiah, and all that he gave us, God. We pray that you would use this word to open our hearts and help us to respond to your, your word. And we would be people that would go back into brokenness and call people out, call people into hope and life and love. We praise you for all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.